thank you that you are the greatest giver. You never, we can never outgive you. You have given us the best. You have given us Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. Help us to always give you our best, not our leftovers. Always the best, because you deserve the best. As uh, Isaac Watts reminds us in the hymn, love so amazing, so divine, that demands my soul, my life, and my all. Even that is reasonable. Even that is the least we can return to you, our life that you've given to us. Because everything we have is a gift from you. Thank you, Lord. May we use this building for your glory. And thank you for so many wonderful, amazing, generous donors that we have in our midst that give to it hurts because they know and they want to always invest in eternity. And the church will always outlive all of us. It will stay on long before we are all gone. And we thank you that we cannot pass it on to the next generation. We'll in turn continue to carry your work to the future generations. Lord, we thank you. You are our great Abba Father. We humbly bow before you and say thank you for providing for us. We thank you. We bless you, Lord. Be with us as we read and study your word. May your word change us from within that we may live for Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. All right. Christianity is not a devotion to work. It is not even a devotion to a particular cause. It is not a devotion even to a particular doctrine. It is not even a devotion to evangelism or discipleship, or even missions. Christianity primarily is the devotion to a person. And that person is our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Christ, the Prince of Peace, the Cornerstone, the Rock, the Good Shepherd, the Living Water, Living Bread, and go on as Scripture describes about who Jesus is. Our primary devotion is to Jesus Christ as a person. Oswald Chamber has a word in this. He said, the greatest competitor of devotion to Jesus is service to Him. It is never do-do with the Lord, but be-be, and He will do through you. The only way to keep true to God is by a steady, persistent refusal to be interested in Christian work and to be interested alone in Jesus Christ. When we are devoted to a person, the work will flow through. This is not just merely semantic kind of uh, emphasis, I believe uh, Oswald Chamber is trying to bring across. But... I believe that with just a slight misstep on your part will lead you down a slippery road of unfulfilled Christian journey at best. 
and a gospel of work at worst. The devotion is to Jesus Christ. That is our ultimate devotion as a Christian, not to the task, not to a doctrine, not to uh, things and all that. But when we devoted to a person, then things will begin to fall into the right place. When our entire orientation to devotion is devotion to Jesus, then our successes and failures slowly can lose some of their power over you. And when you are securely rooted in personal intimacy with the source of life, it will be possible to remain flexible without being relativistic. It is possible to be convinced without being rigid. It is possible to be willing to confront without being offensive. It is possible to be gentle and forgiving without being soft. And it is possible to be a true witness without being manipulative. And that is all rooted in our devotion to a person of Jesus Christ. And so what I want to challenge you this morning is to shine for Jesus. Contagious faith comes from our own rooted being in Jesus Christ, being the source of life. And then you can serve God with who you are as a human, as a person, as a whole being, your personality, your temperaments, your gifts, your experience, your skill. And you can shine wherever you are and at whatever stage that you are in. You can put your temperaments into the right place to serve God. So the flamboyancy in you gives great zeal for the kingdom of God. And your phlegmatism, a bit more laid-back kind of attitude, keeps you, helps to keep an even kill in times of crisis. Your introversion deepens the contemplative side of you and the extroversion of you encourages creative ministry. You can use all your being as a person, your gifts, your experience, your personality, your temperaments. You can use it all for the service of God. And the key is to be intentional. That's all. The key is to be intentional about that. You don't even need extra work in some sense. You need to be intentional and fall in love with Jesus, your entire being, and then just be intentional in whatever stages of life you may be in. So this morning, what I want to do is to, uh, based on a book, number about 20 years ago, uh, someone wrote a book called Contagious Christianity. Uh, it is a groundbreaking book in some sense, a bit like the secular book on love languages. Uh, it is in that contagious Christianity, it listed down there, looking at the Bible and say, well, there are six biblical styles of evangelism. We always think evangelism is just only one part of it where, where you see Billy Graham in the past sending up rally and preaching the gospel and people come forward to, to rededicate or give their life to Jesus. But this book, look at the scripture and say, there are actually six biblical styles of evangelism. There are six biblical styles of evangelism. And as we go through these six styles of evangelism, you begin to identify, ah, 
I'm, I'm, I'm actually more strong in this. Not one, sometimes we spread over across uh, many spectrum, but you will discover that you will have a strength in one part of it. And all that I want to do is to fan the flame on you, discovering that part of you, your temperament, your gifts, your experience, your skill, and how God can use that being of you as who you are to fan you into flame of evangelism. Because many of us say, oh, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't. But actually you can when you discover the scripture, there are many ways, different groups of people, they do evangelism differently. So this morning, for the remaining time that I have, I want to give you and list out these six biblical styles of evangelism in the hope that I can fan the flame in you to leave out and be intentional about the person that you are and use it for the kingdom of God. The first one is confrontational style or some people call it direct style, the person is the person in the Bible that used the style very often is Peter. And the text is in Acts chapter 2 during the Pentecost time, and uh, the Holy Spirit came and then he boldly preached the gospel. The confrontational style, some of us, we have that kind of style. We are a little bit more confrontational. We are a little bit more direct. We are confident, bold, assertive. We skip small talks. We just get to the right point. Uh, we have strong opinions. We have strong conviction on certain things. And some of us are like that. And that is part of you. That is what you are made, your inbuilt in you that is like that. And look at Peter. Peter will stand up and preach to the crowd boldly. And then he will say, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Peter stood up. 3,000 people boldly proclaimed the gospel. And then he said, repent and be baptized. He's in their face with the gospel. So, so some of us have that kind of personality and that kind of style. That you can be offensive at times. But you are bold, you are courageous, you are, you are confident, you are strong conviction on your part and you can direct your energy down a particular way. And so Peter is like that, which I tend to think that increasingly there are lesser and lesser uh, uh, people who are, are like that in a political correctness age. Um, secondly, intellectual style. And the character that referred to is St. Paul in Acts chapter 17. If you remember, Acts 17, let me just read to you the text. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walk around and look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Though Paul certainly could confront when necessary, if you read uh, uh, how he handled things, he is very bold as well, but uh, the hallmark of his approach was usually a logical presentation of the gospel message. Read any of the letters 
the 13 letters that he wrote in the New Testament, Romans being the best example. And you see that he was the master at clearly explaining the central truth of the faith. So this intellectual approach fit highly educated Paul, who was trained for many years as a Pharisee and under Gamaliel, which is a fine Pharisee as a student, with his penchant for debating any of all foes who might challenge his position. So intellectual approach, uh, Paul presented a powerful argument for the truth, uh, starting with the, the idol to an unknown God and moving all the way to the only true God and his resurrected Messiah. You can read that in Acts 17. So Paul's approach was effective and some of the listeners became believers. So uh, these thinkers type in Athens would not have related well to Peter's direct approach turn or burn, or truth or burn, you know, turn or burn approach. They needed logic and conclusively prove the point. And some of us, I think, increasingly in an information age, that kind of approach is very popular. That is what the science of Christian apologetic comes in, uh, which, uh, which people are analytical, logical, inquisitive. They like to resonate, they like to debate, like to work through issues more concerned with what people think than how they feel. H.G. Uh, Wells, the British uh, novelist, commenting, commenting during the Second World War, he said, If I felt there was an omnipotent, omnipotent means unlimited, powerful God, omnipotent God who looked down on b battles and deaths and all the ways and horror of this war, able to prevent these things, Doing them to amuse himself, if there is such a God, I will spit in his empty face. So, so there is this apology, then you have to defend how to resonate all-powerful God with an all-loving God. Or even Edward Tabas, a vehement atheist, a Jew, he said, if God or the Bible actually exists, I want to sue him for negligence for being asleep at the will of the universe when my grandfather and uncle were gassed to death in Auschwitz. He went on to refer to God as a cosmic egomaniac and a moral monster. And then he issued, issued the following challenge. He said, if you are listening and you are really there, show yourself right now. Manifest on this stage. Do a colossal miracle. Levitate this building. Show me something more than ancient hearsay from the depths of antiquity to prove your existence. And if you do not meet my challenge, I say to you, if you are awake and listening, that, that you are violating your moral duty to manifest yourself, considering that you yourself has, have erected such harsh penalties to befall on those of us who do not believe. If there is such a penalty to be paid for disbelief, then you must, to be fair, give us greater evidence to induce that belief. You see the strong anger of resonating this loving God. So we need this kind of, uh, there are some people who have this intellectual kind of approach and, and able to give cohesive worldviews that, that, able to hang it on together of a loving God as well as evil and sufferings in this world. So there are 
intellectual approach that we need. And some of us are there. Even C.S. Lewis, touted as the uh, most uh, uh, greatest apologi uh, apologist in the 20th century. He married at the age of 58 after remaining single for almost all his life. He married at the age of 58 to an American uh, writer, but only short-lived for four years. And then his wife, Joy Davidman, died of cancer. Uh, and he wrote a book after that called A Grief Observed. It's an incredible book, A Grief Observed. And he says this, and you can see he wrestled his thought and all through his experience, he became a, a one of the greatest apologists. Uh, read, wrote the book Mere Christianity that has influenced one of the top 10 books in the world. He says this, look at his, his negative approach. He said, not that, I'm, not that I am in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. No, the real danger is in coming to believe such a dreadful things about Him. The conclusion I drag is not so there's no God after all. But so this is what God is really like. Lewis mentioned the time he and his wife had prayed for a cure. What they got was wrong diagnosis, false hopes, strange remissions, and even one astonishing recovery. But it was only temporary. And the God who held joy, Lewis, in his hands, did fearful things with, his hand, with those hands. Step by step, we were led up the garden path. Time after time, when he seemed most gracious, he was preparing the next torture. I wrote that last night. It was yow rather than just a torch. But emerged through it. He came strong and he was able to resonate and able to debate, able to uh, discuss the topic of a God who is a loving God and yet at the same time suffering is part of the equation in this fallen world. And so there are people who are able to attack on that ground, the intellectual approach, in, in, in apologetic matters. And that is Paul. But that may, be, may not be our cup of tea for some of us. You may not be wired that way or create that way or endowed with certain type of gifts. But some are. And we thank God for many fine apologists across the globe who has been carrying this baton in this information age. Thirdly, testimonial style which the story comes from the blind man in John chapter 9. Remember the story in John chapter 9? The blind man that was born, born blind and then he was healed by Jesus in John chapter 9. This is called the testimonial style. And this is what he said. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind, the Pharisees. Give glory to God by telling the truth. How did you get healed? They said, we know this man is a sinner, referring to Jesus. How can this man, Jesus is a sinner, Heal you. Tell us the truth. He replied, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. Neither do I bother doing it, neither do I care. I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. He said. He was blind since birth. He regularly begged from people passing by. He routinely, quickly changed when Jesus came along and gave him the gift of sight. He completely transformed. Before he knew it, he found himself in front of a hostile audience being asked to explain what had happened. Notice the diversity of evangelistic style. When Peter stood in front of a similar audience, he confronted them with the truth and told them he would obey God over people. Paul reasoned 
from the scriptures with his listeners to show them that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. But the formerly blind man took neither of these approaches. Instead, he spoke from his experience and confidently declared, One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. That's hard to argue against, isn't it? How do you argue against a personal encounter? If you look at verse 3 in chapter 9, uh, Jesus said that because the question was asked, who sinned? His parents or the man that he was born blind? Jesus said, neither. And then Jesus went on to say he was born blind. The reason? So that the work of God might be displayed in his life. That is, a, that is an example of what I've been trying to bring across to you. We are custom tailored to a particular approach. God has been preparing this man all of his life to use his story to point people towards Christ. There are many people around you who need to hear a similar story about how God is working in your life. They might not respond very well to a challenge or an argument, but a personal account of someone's coming to faith would influence them powerfully. Could that story be yours? Some of you say it's a testimonial style. You can share your story. I can stand here and tell you how I became a Christian. I can tell you my story. So effective testimonies don't have to be dramatic. You know, every time before we baptize people, we obviously ask someone to stand up and give their testimony. And some people say, oh, my testimony is very boring, nothing really dramatic. No, no, it's your story. It doesn't need to be dramatic. Some people may be a powerfully convert because of some crime or drugs or whatever, but majority of us are gradually, even your parents bring you to Sunday school, to church, this and that, gradually. Don't exclude yourself from this approach because you have an ordinary story. Ordinary stories relate well to the ordinary people in your neighborhood and workplace. The oldest person that I baptized was an 85-year-old lady. She just happened to be in a church service, my old church, in a Cantonese service. I was preaching in English and translated into Cantonese. And she happened to be there visiting from Singapore. His daughter was, her daughter was here and she heard the gospel about forgiveness of sin. And after service, he, she told uh, her daughter, I want this young pastor to baptize me. By then, I was in the 30s. I want him to baptize me. And in that week, I baptized him. And before I baptized her, sorry, before I baptized her, I said, well, she has a story to share. And, uh, and I said, well, for 85 years, do you know how many people have sowed seed in her life? From her two daughters who, who have been Christian, have been praying for her. 85 years sowing seed, the neighbors, the gospel tract that was given to her, the Bible given to her, sermon. So many people have sowed seed in her life. And I just happened to be at the end, collect the fruit of others' labor. That's all. That's all I did. So sometimes you can tell your story. Your story speaks volumes of words. And some of us, we have story to tell about our life, giving testimony about your life and how God has watches over you during difficult times. It may be you. Fourth approach is the interpersonal style. And the character in the Bible who used this style is Matthew. Matthew 
as you know, Matthew was uh, another name is Levi. He was a tax collector. Tax collectors is on not very accepted in the Jewish culture because they side with the Roman Empire and they tax the Jewish people more than what they were uh, expected to to pay. And Matthew uh, became a believer. Look at uh, what he says here. Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth, which is Matthew, by the way. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Levi, most people believe that Matthew came from the tribe of Levi. And his parents, uh, so he's from the Jewish uh, priestly tribe in some sense. And he know a lot of things about the gospel, but he strayed away, just like many Christians who grew up in the church from a parenting, good background, Christian family, they left, and then eventually sometime in the future, they return back to the faith. And he got up, he left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Because of his background, he became Christian. He quickly invited all of his tax collectors' friends to meet Jesus. He said, come, come, come. And they said that uh, Matthew was one of the higher rank of the tax collectors. So there are a couple of them under, under him. And he gathered a group of them because he found Christ. And he gathered and invited Jesus for dinner or lunch and gathered a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And this is a classic reply by Jesus. Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call the sinners to repentance. So tax collectors were not just known for becoming evangelists, yet that's exactly what happened to Matthew. And after accepting Jesus' call, he decided to do whatever he could to bring along as many of his friends as possible. And so here, uh, it's a vintage point, it's a friendship relational, which is a key now. They say that evangelism is increasingly moving away from propositional truth to relational. People don't care about what you know until they know how much you care. In the past, they belong first. They believe first and then they belong. Increasingly, people want to belong first and then they believe. And so relational is friendship is, is the highest possibility of influence in the lives of others because all of us are friends and we can influence that. You will never get to a person's soul until you understand their hurts. Until you're willing to, to listen to people's problems and, and care for people. Uh, people don't, don't care about you at all, what you know. And so... In, so interpersonal, relational style is paramount in this modern age of information. And they want to see something tangible in your life that is manifesting truth uh, before, or if I may put it the other way, in an age where you can no longer tell people what to believe, you can show people how to believe in your life. Let your life be the model of it. 
So there's an interpersonal style, which is Matthew, relational. And some of us are highly relational people. And you can use that, be a bit more intentional about using your personality and your gifts and your style for evangelism, for God. Because next one is invitational style. The invitational style is the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 that I believe uh, most of us are familiar with the story. It is a classic example of an invitational style. It didn't take long for the Samaritan woman to realize that the man she was talking to was no ordinary teacher. His prophetic insights, his authoritative answers convinced her of his claim to be the Messiah. So what did she do? Look at what she did there. You know, you don't know. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Not just only he was talking to a woman, he was talking to a Samaritan woman. Samaritan comes from uh, uh, the mix of Jews and Gentiles. Because in the days of exile, the Babylonian came and attacked uh, the Jewish people went into exile, but there are some Jewish people left behind to do farming work. And so the Babylonian co-married with the, with, uh, with the local uh, leftover Jewish people who remnant of that there and therefore produced a race and became Samaritans. And the Jewish people hate the Samaritan uh, very much. And as we already know, uh, most of the people, when they're heading down from the north to the south for yearly pilgrimage, they have to pass through Samaria. They will take extra three days' journey just to bypass Samaria this way. Because they, they, want, they don't want to be even polluted by the air you know, of the Samaritans. And here, uh, they, they were surprised. The disciples were surprised that Jesus was talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? And then leaving her, her water jar, the woman went back to the town and he said to the people, Come! Come! See a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Come! Come is a beautiful word. Come in. Come and join us. It's an invitation. Jesus said, Come. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And at that we say that before you can go, you must come first. Come! Jesus said, come. It's a beautiful word. I work as a salesman uh, selling encyclopedia. That's my first job. And one of the things that I love to hear when I knock on the door of uh, the resident is to say, come in. Come in. I love to hear that. And we have all kinds of tactics that we use to gain entry in those days. They teach you all kinds of tactics. And when you present yourself, you identify what you're supposed to do. They say, immediately you go down and untie your shoelace. And you must ask the question, may I come in and present to you? <laughs> it works in Asian culture. It might not be in a Western culture. Because Asian culture is a shame culture. They will invite you. Oh, since you already untied the shoelace. Uh, and we have all kinds of tactics to do that. And one of the best things we love to hear is, come in, come. Come and join me for a cup of coffee. Come and join me for lunch. Come and have meals with me. Invitation is a one. Some people are gifted in that. Some people have a way of including people, hospitable. You know, come. 
The house is yours. Come and join me. Come, open up your house. Your beautiful house that you have. Use it for God. Invite people into it. Come. And so he said, come. See a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And so what did they do? They came out of the town. They made their way toward him because of this word. Women. And then down to verse 42, what happened when, they, when this Samaritan woman invited these people and these people went to Jesus? What happened in verse 42? They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Invitational style. She was not a Preaching gospel, she was not like Peter. She was not Paul, very intellectual. She would just invite people. Come. Come to church. It's a special event. Come and join us. Come to my small group. Come. Come to a special social event. Come. Can you come? Invite. C-O-M-E. Come. Beautiful words. Should be part of our vocabulary. Come. So that is an invitational style. Maybe you. God may wire you in that way. God may imbue in you a style of very hospitable. To embrace stranger people. Easily connect with people. Go for walk. Some of us, we go for walk. We can talk to 20 people while we're walking. So end up, you don't, you don't get to walk a lot. You talk to people. Their dog, their cat or whatever. And, 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 you can't, you can't do that. Become friends and you can invite them. Maybe that is your style. You have no fear of talking to strangers or people. You can easily connect with them on their level, easily. And the last one, that a biblical style of evangelism is serving style. And that is Dorcas. Dorcas, you are here, Dorcas. I can see you. And uh, that is in Greek. And it's the same meaning as Tabitha. In Acts chapter 9, verses 36 to 43, it says this about Dorcas. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. She was always doing good and helping the poor. She was well known for her loving acts of service performed in the name of Christ. Specifically, she made ropes and articles of clothing for widows and other unfortunate people in her town. She was in effect a quiet practitioner of the service approach in, to evangelism. It would have been very hard for people to observe her activity and not get a glimpse of the love of Christ that inspired her. In fact, her work was so important that when she died a premature death, God sent Peter. Why he mentioned this passage? God sent Peter to raise her from the dead. So in case you think that only Lazarus was raised from the dead in the New Testament, 
Dorcas was raised from the dead. But not by Jesus, but by Peter. So when her, her work was so important that when she died a premature death, God sent Peter to raise her from the dead and put her back into service. People who take this approach are motivated to humbly serve others. They notice needs others overlook. And they find joy in meeting those needs. Even if they don't get credit for it. Often more quiet types, these people enjoy expressing compassion through tangible forms of assistance. Francis of Assisi used to say, use every means possible to convert the loss. Where necessary, use words. Did you get that? When necessary, when necessary, use words. That means let your action be the main thing of showing one's preaching evangelism. William Barclay, a Scottish uh, Bible commentator, say more people have been brought into the church by the kindness of real Christian love than by all the theological arguments in the world. And more people have been driven from the church by the hardness and ugliness of so-called Christianity than by all the doubts in the world. Serving style. You know, though these styles often take longer to produce spiritual results, is one of the most important of all the evangelistic approaches. That's because service style evangelists touch people nobody else can reach. I read a story about a, a, a lady uh, was very strongly and stubborn. Her parents shared gospel with her. She would resist. Intellectual argue approach. She would, she would resist. She would never uh, accept. And then she went overseas for studies in England. And when she arrived there, there was neighbor who helped her set her down, bring her food, show her kindness, and all that, service her, help her. And they increasingly found out that they were Christians. And as a result of their love and kindness and service, helping them to bring the bank, open bank account, this tradesman, all kinds of things, eventually she became a Christian. But not from the parents or from friends who intellectually argue with her, not from the uh, direct approach, confrontational. It is just through service of other Christians who brought about that service. There was a book called Redefining Leadership by Joseph Stowell. And in the book, the author talked about Mother Teresa was an unlikely leader. She was small frame. She was, she was bent over none who gave herself to serve the slum people in New Delhi in India. And she was asked to speak at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington in 1994. I think so. And she delivered a powerful defense of valuing the life of the unborn. Hardly able to see over the podium, she courageously articulated the importance of protecting life. As she spoke, two of the most powerful leaders in the world, President Bill Clinton 
and Vice President Al Gore were seated on either side of her. Both of them were outspoken advocates of abortion. And Mother Teresa stood up and said this. And I feel compelled to just read this passage to what she said because it is so powerful. She said, I feel that the greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion. Because it is a war against the child. A direct killing of the innocent child. Murder by the mother herself. And if we accept that a mother can kill even her own child, how can we tell other people not to kill one another? How do we persuade a woman not to have an abortion? As always, we must persuade her with love. And we remind ourselves that love means to be willing to give until it hurts. Jesus gave even his life to love us. So the mother who is thinking of, of abortion should be helped to love, and that is to give until it hurts, her plans or her free time, to respect the life of her child. The father of that child, whoever he is, must also give until it hurts. By abortion, the mother does not learn to love, but kills even her own child to solve her problems. And by abortion, the father is told that he does not have to take any responsibility at all for the child he has brought into the world. That father is likely to put other women into the same trouble. So abortion just leads to more abortion. Any country that accepts abortion is not teaching its people to love, but to use any violence to get what they want. This is why the greatest destroyer of love and peace is abortion. And the statement drew a standing ovation. Needless to say, her commands created a rather awkward moment for the president whose speech followed directly on the heels of Mother Teresa's. When he began his speech, you know what he said? Bill Clinton simply said, it's very hard to argue with a life so well lived. How do you argue with a life that is so well lived? How do you do that? To give his entire life to the service of humanity. How do you argue with that? And she used to go on and tell people, if you don't want your baby, give birth and I will take it. Mother Teresa would say that. I would take it. Service is another approach that we can use to serve God and use it for evangelism. So there are six biblical styles of evangelism methods that the book presented. I don't know which one is your style. Some of us are overlapping a bit here and there. Some of us are very strong in one particular area. Nobody perfectly fits into just one of these styles. Every believer probably has a mix of several of them. And you might come up with style number 7, style number 8, style number 10. These approaches are presented not to limit you, but to encourage you with the value of diversity on God's team. You can be yourself, so work within your style and your gifts and your experience and your personality. 
Experiment with different approaches. Let God lead you to express your faith naturally to those around you. Team up with other Christians. Some husband and wife, they compliment each other. Recognize that. Don't oppose each other's gifts. You know, some wife is a very hospitable, but husband don't want. And always prevent the wife from doing that. Compliment each other. Don't prevent, fan each other's flame. Let each other's flame bloom for God. Don't quench it. Don't put the water over it. Fan the flame and allow them to do it. Even that is not your approach. That may not be your gift. Allow them to do it and just go along with them. Take some risk in your relationship and let God work through you. In the process, you enjoy the thrilling adventure of personal evangelism and you make an eternal difference in the lives of people you love. I want to conclude with just final remark. A couple of years ago, someone sent me a picture with a piano and these words on it, which all of us, we've received these kind of things. And I received that and it touches me deeply and I saved that into my, into my phone. It says this on that picture of a piano. It says, life is like a piano. The white keys represent happiness. And the black keys show sadness. But as you go through life journey, please remember and never forget that the black keys also make music. Please remember and don't forget the black keys, your sorrowful times, also creates and makes music. So let your life be a whole being of serving the Lord. Let your whole being be an evangelism for God. Good time, bad time, sorrowful time probably shines brighter. During sorrowful time, if you can create beautiful music, it speaks even louder than good times. And so may you be encouraged today to use your whole being entire being of your temperament, your gifts, your experience, your skill. Use it for the Lord. All that you need to do is remember this word. Be intentional. That's all. No extra work. Be intentional about that. And you see the door will begin to open up for you into an adventure of sharing the gospel in your little context, in your ways. Father, what a joy to, uh, uh, to know that you love us. What a great joy to know that our devotion is to a person, to Jesus Christ, not to a task, not to things. And when we keep on focusing on devoting to you as a person, we're beginning to be able to be secure in who we are because we are loved. When we are loved, we are secured. 
when we are secure, we can live from the center of our life and be who we are and be confident to be who we are and use our gifts to serve you. Use our style, the inbuilt, the inbuilt temperament that is in us that you, you wire it. We can use it freely flowing out from loving you and use it to serve you and be intentional. Whether it is the direct approach, whether it is the intellectual approach, whether it is the testimonial approach, whether it is the interpersonal style, whether it is the invitational style, or simply just by serving people, uh, that we will be confident and secure in who we are and use our whole being for your glory. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are God of grace. Thank you. It is an outrageous grace that you save us, you redeem us. We bless you, Lord, as we close now with this beautiful reminder of this song. Lord, thank you. Amen.